Chapter Eleven of Flowers and Ferns in Their Haunts by Mabel Osgood Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Perard. Chapter Eleven: The Drapery of Vines. Vines are terrible, curious-natured things," said Time o' Year, the week after the great August storm that had uprooted trees, swept away frail bridges gullied the hillsides and furrowed the fields of standing corn as with a juggernaut car he was at work outside his cabin trying to replace the drapery of vines that concealed the rough chestnut slabs before the wind had rudely rent and twisted them touching each prostrate branch and relaxed tendril as gently as if it was a sensate thing sorely bruised and wounded all that keeps them from standing up and being like trees and other plants is weak backbones that makes em fall over and hang hold of something else which as i've observed likewise often happens with folks i reckon there's reason and intention in it for we couldn't get along without vines ter take this shiftless look out of old rail fences trim up dead trees and sort of pull together things that's all howsome any more'n we could do without the leanin sort of folks that's to be found in most families outdoors would be mighty lonesome if the woods was all made o straight poplars now you naturally allow leanin' and hangin' on was a mighty simple thing to do but when you reckon up the different ways they have o doin it it is not far to believin that vines can move and think things out somehow for many on em acts good intentioned and others pesky same as folks some vines just lay flat on the ground and sort of trail along have no ambition to go far and the stem gets covered with dirt so you'd scarcely know it for a vine like arbutus and twin flowers partridge vine and ground pine others sends up long branches that grow quick and seem to sort of feel round uneasy until they've touched something to lay hold on then they're up and off sky high twisting themselves round and round and climbing like snakes great bindweed goes that way pulling itself up over the weeds and maybe two vines'll meet and wind around each other and climb up in the air waxwork does that too and climbing hemp see that lot of it down there by the river the way it's prettied up that mess of stick tights by covering em in then again, some vines has strong woody stems with little sort of roots along em, which they use, like caterpillars do feet, to stick and walk along by. Three fingers, poison ivy, does that, while five fingers, Virginia creeper, has climbers all made special to claw wood and stone, with little suckers on the end, just like tree toes toes. Grapes has these climbers, too, lacking the suckers, and so is obliged to twist em round like wires, same as catbriar, which I call pesky, along with tear-thumb. That's a mean, cussed thing, having stem prickles set backward like fishhook barbs. More yet climbs by the twiny end of the leaves like tears, or looping and twisting the whole leaf around like this bower vine here. The bower vine toward which time o' year pointed was a wonderful plant of the virgin's bower clematis, which, by means of long canes of standard blackberries, has climbed to the cabin eaves and seized upon an overhanging maple branch to continue its career. 
Then, buffeted by the storm, it had fallen back in a mass upon the blackberries in that stage of relaxed perfection of bloom that is followed by the gray-feathered winged seeds. The old man looked quite himself once more, except that the hurried speech, which, for one of his silent nature, was akin to garrulous, told of nervousness. Laying down the hammer, tacks, and bits of leather with which he was fastening the vines in place, until, as he expressed it, they could feel their fingers again. He went into the cabin and brought out two long envelopes, tied up in a legal manner with red tape. Here be those papers that we spoke about together a spell ago, her claims and mine, all wrote out, a clear title, and swore to by the town clerk over to the center. He claims, and he knows, that the society'll have to keep these, but the copies that you're going to get made in pictures'll be for Alois, all right. Now, the old doctor's that's dead, he had family pride, and his folks was all figured out like a tree with roots and branches and what not. I saw it once when I fetched him up some fish flies. I was thinking that I'd like these here, drawn out like two sugar maples, such as those in front of the farm up there, standing side by side, and when they're worked up to the top, to have the branches touch, that's me and her, and then right over that, work in Alois picture, kind of like an apple, cause she's the last barren of both trees, and she's going to start a new plantin' all over in fresh ground. But how about using Alois as an apple on the top of a maple tree, I asked struggling to take exact account of his directions, for the guidance of Flower Hat in the doing of this curious task for which I stood sponsor. I asked the daughter that about his'n, which was plainly an oak tree, and at every name was writ on an apple. He laughed and said it was the way with family trees, that took on curious, contrary grafts that would kill any other kind, and often upset scripter by bearing figs on thorns and grapes of thistles. Also, he supposed apples was a good humbling fruit to use on such trees to keep down family pride and make folks meditate on the fall of man and the worry unknown too much. When I stowed the papers safely away under the seat of the chaise, the delicate fragrance of violets seemed to rise from the damp, matted herbage by the river. As I raised my head to catch the wind, after the fashion of a hunting dog, a habit soon acquired by outdoor people on the alert for scent and sound. Time of year noticed the expression of inquiry and said, No, it ain't violets. Come and see. Ground nuts, he added laconically, pointing to where a mass of bean-like leaves and twisted vine stalks mingled with the elder bushes, now loaded with the translucent, wine-colored berries. Hyacinth beans, I added, lifting the leaves to find the clusters of thick-petaled, keeled flowers of violet-brown that yield such an exquisite odor. The vine was fairly heavy with its fragrant burden, but the flower clusters, being born in the leaf axils, are often concealed from the eye, and so first tell the nose of their presence. For a space of at least twenty yards, the bushes of the low ground were bound into a hedge by this vigorous vine, which, although too inconspicuous in itself to be called a landscape flower, pays its tithe 
in fragrance and brings into uniformity much that would otherwise be unsightly straggling growth this bean has two cousins one pesky to use time o year's expression and the other daintily pretty the hog peanut of tangles and woodland underbrush and the trailing wild bean of sandy road banks the hog peanut is so very pesky and destructive to delicate ferns and flowers by throwing its octopus-like meshes around them and literally choking them to death that every lover of the wildwood undergrowth should make a point of uprooting it wherever possible it is a plant easily identified by its hairy persistent stems that trail low and its three-divided leaf in form suggesting that of poison ivy its cluster of purple-pink flowers being less conspicuous than the pea-like pods that follow them. Many a time have I gone to the haunt of maidenhair, closed gentian, or gerardia, to find the plants wholly choked by this bean, which is more mischievous than the daughter, that winds its coils of copper about marsh plants without having its merit of originality. The trailing wild bean, on the other hand, decorates what would be barren and unsightly banks with little clusters of pink flesh or lilac-tinted blossoms held well above the handsome leaves on straight stiff stalks which from the wholly prostrate habit of the vine appear like separate plants the long slender pods oftenest growing in groups of three are also quite ornamental these two are minor vines almost ground-dwellers, so to speak, akin to vetches, beech-peas, trefoils, bedstraws, jill over the ground, bearberry, cranberry, pixie, and a score of other trailing vines which, according to the definition that, quote, a vine is any plant having a weak stem that reclines on the ground or rises by means of aerial rootlets or by clasping or twining about a support are so classified, but which are commonly regarded merely as low-growing plants. The vine, in Bible language, indicated the grape, and at once suggests the climbing, rather than the merely prostrate, trailing plants. The real vines of the landscape are those that drape the ungraceful and screen the unsightly, swinging their branches in the wind as they climb to their treetop flower gardens, trailing them in the streams which they try to imitate in the undulous motions of their growth or following the highways to decorate and drape neglected walls and fences by their presence of the ninety or so vines of the northeastern states twenty comprise all those exclusive of garden escapes that have real landscape value these make themselves felt in different ways and degrees sometimes as a whole than either by leaf and tendril flower or fruit or by only one of these so that to appreciate vines one must be able to recognize them under all conditions as we know the trees as standard plants may be roughly classified as herbs and shrubs so may landscape vines be grouped as herbaceous and woody climbers the first being those that coming from either perennial roots or seed make a new growth each year being cut down to the ground only or wholly killed by frost the second the vines of hardy stems which go on increasing inside from year to year 
until, as in the case of the poison ivy, Virginia creeper, and waxwork, or bittersweet, the stem often attains such proportions that it remains standing and tree-like after the support to which it originally clung has fallen away. All of these vines flower during summer, according to locality and situation. In fact, I can recall no northern climbing vine that is represented among the early spring flowers, though ground-trailing arbutus, evergreen round pines, club mosses, flowering moss, or pixie, technically speaking, represent the general class at the coming of spring. Of the woody, or in fact of all our vines, Virginia creeper stands easily the pier. Clean of limb, with leaves of five gracefully poised parts, disc-topped tendrils, and flower stems which look like leaf framework adapted for the plant's service, as in truth they are, it has clusters of small green flowers that make its haunts hum like a beehive all through July, followed in autumn by deep blue berries with a frosty bloom, set on red stalks which often remain in coral-like spikes after the fruit has gone to make a meal for hungry birds. As a climber, its ambition is boundless, for without turning from its course, this creeper will often ascend fifty feet, at the same time sending out branches at right angles that swing and droop with the most perfect grace. In color scheme, it rivals the poison ivy, that handsome but evil plant which for its sins is set apart. In summer, even, Virginia creeper often shows pinkish ribs and leaf veinings, while from middle August until frost scatters the leaflets, all the scintillations of flame belong to it. A little way from home, there is a crossroad that I call the Vineway, where the rocky bank has been allowed to keep its wealth of hedging, and where the plants and trees that have become wayfarers are protected by the owner of the borderland. Here is yearly a sort of gallery exhibition of these hardy vines hung about and over a thicket of tall red cedars, bird cherries, and privet bushes. And as all the flowers and fruit are held high over a stony bank, they are as sour grapes to the passer-by and remain undespoiled. In early summer, the white flowers of bird cherry are contrasted with the coral tubes of trumpet honeysuckle of smooth twining stem whose oblong leaves those underneath the flowers closing around the stalk are almost evergreen even in connecticut after the fashion of its chinese relatives which having escaped from a nearby garden cover the opposite wall the virgin's bower rooted in moister soil behind the fence leans over to clasp a prim bush of privet, while catbriar, set like a barbed screen to keep out intruders, shows varnished green leaves, clusters of a dozen or so yellowish flowers in June, and all the rest of the year berries that range from green to purple-black, hanging on as impervious to cold as leaden bullets through the fiercest winter storms. The group of cedars on this bank have been chosen by the waxwork and Virginia creepers for trellises upon which to display all their ambition for high climbing and their capabilities for draping, looping, and twining, in which they are joined by a veteran shaggy-barked vine of foxgrape, 
also near kin to the Virginia creeper, its few clustered bunches of amber-purple berries being the ancestors of Isabella, Concord, and other garden favorites. What a harmonious trio they make! The grape furnishes fragrance in flower and fruit, the creeper beauty of leaf, and the waxwork the most highly decorative berry of any vine, either when the little yellow lemons are intact or after they open to display the scarlet seed pulp. Yet, in spite of these great berry wreaths that crown the pointed cedars, it is the Virginia creeper which draws the eye by its combined grace and massiveness, both displayed by different parts of the same vine. In fact, this creeper, though not an evergreen, is the only American equivalent for the transfiguring old-world ivy, and, like it, survives transplanting and continues its hopeful upward course, throwing its lovely draperies equally over rocks, trees, or crumbling ruins as if to shield them from public gaze during their downward way. In spite of the fact that on this bank, at least, it has often been uprooted, Poison ivy still struggles up a stone heap, endeavoring to display its gorgeous colors with the other climbers, showing that this vine of fatal touch has at least the two good attributes that a charitable old lady accorded the devil, perseverance and good taste in reds. The other wild grapes that hold such an important place in the landscape are the sweet-scented riverside and frost varieties. The riverside grape is the vine whose shining, deeply loved leaves make green walls of the bushes along streams, the blossoms filling the air with musky perfume in early summer, and the fruit with spice from July until the last cluster has disappeared in middle autumn. The frost, chicken, or possum grape, with leaves of both the poplar and maple type, is most conspicuous in autumn when others have lost their fruits from its thickly clustering bunches of small black berries covered with bloom and more nearly resembling an irregular bunch of bird cherries than the yield of any of its grape kindred there is something in the swing and trail of a grapevine that gives both breadth and focus to a water picture so much so that the fox grape seems out of place growing in dry woods and looping its stout stems like swings between the trees. Vines and rivers always seem to me of kindred temperament, and three at least of our loveliest summer vines are hereabout oftenest found within sound of water. These are mountain fringe, balsam apple, and the wild yam. Mountain fringe also grows on hillsides, but I associate it with moist woods quite near the river, where its delicate leaves, across between those of meadow rue and the deeply cleft foliage of its cousin, Dutchman's breeches, fall in relief against a dark background and support the violet-white dangling blossoms whose shape faintly suggests those of the bleeding heart of old gardens. The balsam apple, in a wild state, is a true vine of waterways, following them as closely as does the river grape, though in cultivation it seems resigned to any rather moist, rich soil. When in July it puts forth its flower clusters, which are of two kinds, the one bearing the seed being small and inconspicuous, 
the other a long feathery wand of dull white six-cleft flowers, it is decorative in the extreme, and fairly overflows herbs and shrubs with a foam-topped tidal wave of bloom. It also makes effective use of its three-fingered tendrils, and adds a silvery tint of green to the landscape by its somewhat star-shaped leaves. Balsam apple is not common hereabout, though Tommy Year's river mirrors a few masses of it, but all along the lower Bronx in New York State it is so abundant as to paint charming pictures for the passers-by on trains. The wild yam is a vine of moist seclusion, rather than one that follows the wood edge or open river. It climbs by its stem for twelve or fifteen feet, and its leaves are of the shape of some of the bindweeds and the wild convolvulus, except that the veins run lengthwise, marking it as akin to the lily tribe, the veining being like that of the carrion flower, which shows its balls of feathery white flowers along June hedges and wood borders, to be followed by clusters of sometimes forty or fifty bluish berries. The yam has a very fantastic way of progressing, by going to the end of a straight sapling, then bending in a leafy festoon until it reaches another, so that a dozen slender trees may be joined and draped in this graceful fashion. The small flowers are a greenish-white, drooping in loose panicles, quite inconspicuous in comparison with the bright green three-angled seeds, which, when mature, are almost one inch long and hang in long bunches that are very ornamental. These frequently remain over winter, serving as a guide to the home of a vine that might be unnoticed in summer when thick leafage covers its retreat in the same woods, beloved of climbing nightshade. Three other summer vines there are, landscape factors, and yet veritable wayfarers, appearing to follow wayside fences as persistently as the knights of the road do the railway tracks. These are wild convolvulus, false buckwheat, and wild hop. Wild convolvulus is the most decorative of the summer wild vines, and its chaliced flowers of either pure white or pink with white stripes are to be seen mingling with wild roses and fragrant elder blossoms in early summer. To think of one plant, in fact, is to call to mind the others. No support is too humble for the convolvulus, a bunch of weeds, a ground wire from a telegraph pole, or a fence will do. And I have seen dead milkweed and mullein stalks so completely appropriated by its clinging stem and clean triangular leaves as to deceive the unwary into thinking the convolvulus a standing plant. Sunflower Lane is hedged with these lovely flowers every June, their places being taken in late summer by festoons of climbing false buckwheat, cousin to tear thumb, which has a somewhat similar though more heart-shaped leaf than the convolvulus, and loose panicles of yellowish-green flowers quickly followed by the three-angled seeds resembling the hulls of buckwheat. I have found the native hop living in Sunflower Lane, a way that precludes the idea of its being a garden escape. To watch the growth of this vine, for the growth is almost visible, its manner of reaching out for and clasping the support when once it is secured, is to agree that, as a mental effort, 
The study of the movements of vines is second only to that of the fertilization of orchids by insects. Darwin testifies that a new shoot of hops rises straight from the ground, and after a while support bends and travels, as if groping around all parts of the compass, moving in a circle, like the hands on a watch, either until it finds a support to contract about, or until it becomes stiff from age. And he has estimated the average time for one revolution around the circle to be two hours and eight minutes. It's curious that vines is about the easiest posies to move, said Tommy Year, standing by the cabin and surveying the repaired greenery. Just like lopsy folks, give em good feedin' and a support according to their natures, and they're settled in no time. People have set feelings in trees being different. But I'll say this for the vines. You must cut them back to the root and let them spring up fresh and take their own hold of things. Each one has its own way of twisting and won't go back-handed. One that by nature goes left-wise'll lie flat on the ground, for it'll twist to the right, even if there's good stuff to hang to nearby showing plenty of spunk where it don't seem of no account, just like leaning folks. All that tacking and tying up I've done won't amount to anything, only to keep the vines from breaking down till they feel their own fingers again. Be you in a hurry? No? Then I'll fetch chairs, for I've summit more to lay before you. The lease of my old farm being out in October, I let em know I didn't calculate to rent again, and quicker and grease lightning a story got round that F was married and coming home to live and all such like. I felt called to stop talk by telling the new minister's wife the facts yesterday when she was passing up this road a black bear in. Nothing about F's tale-telling and Alois's letter, but just that he was dead and had done well with some funds I sent him, and that I reckoned to move back to the farm to live at least a winter's and fix it up a bit, if I could see my way clear and get things straightened out right. She seemed mighty pleased and interested and come in and set down a spell. She said, it's real cozy here. I don't wonder you like it better than big lonely house. Yes, says I. After she died, most indoor places seemed too big and lonesome. That's why I've kept mostly outside. Seemed somehow to me that the meeting house was the loneliest place of all. I'm reconciled to scripter. If it ain't pressed too fur to prove out meanings that wasn't thought on, when it was writ, but going by that, I don't ever suppose we was meant to set in meeting houses anyway. When I've tried to do it since she died, I've just felt cooped up in sin and not right safe again until I'm down the river hill. Folks go so far as to say nature's a heathen god instead of being one of his hands to work out things as I see it. Said she, looking round kind of scared of her own voice. I often feel that also, and the dear Lord himself surely loved and lived out of doors and taught on mountains, by the sea, and under wayside trees, choosing just ordinary field lilies and wildfowl for his texts. Yours is a clear sight, time o' year. My, but things is changed since that day when, in the meeting house, they preached F away from home and her out of the world and me enter the woods at one time. By and by, when the minister's wife got rested, she looked up and says, kind of quick, I guess you'll need a housekeeper if you move up to the farm. That's the worst on it, says I. It's over long since 
I've had my outgoings and incomings noticed, or was held accountable for the same. In trout time and long in fall when quail and partridge is fair game and coons are out, and in between times I'm out early and late and keep no regular hours, so I'm afeard no sober-minded woman hereabout would want to put up with me, nor most like I with her. Why not try someone from away, she said, kind of smiling and crossing the cabin to pick up the botany book that the schoolma'am I told you of gave me. I'm not acquainted further in the ridge, says I. Why not have her, says she, pointed to the name on the front page. That'd be well satisfied, only I don't know if she's alive even. She is, said the minister's wife, jumping up, not able to keep it in longer, and she's got to give up teaching for good and all on account of the close air in the schoolhouse hurting her lungs again. She's poorly off and looking for a place as housekeeper, if only to work for board. We were schoolgirls together, and when I moved here, she told me all about you and said she hoped she'd see you once again. She would not curb your comings and goings, but would be a daughter to you. May I write to her? The Lord be praised. It does beat all, says I, how taking counsel of right-minded women gives comfort. I'd lived so long away from them, I'd near forgot. Scripture is true. No man can either live or die to himself, and I've done the one and come pretty near doing to other. No, so long as man is born a woman, he's calculated to have some folks around, I reckon, and if he don't, things don't work out just right. So, minister's wife, she's going to write, naming good pay and fix it up, and by the time the hickory nuts is ripe, and I've laid in some, along of walnuts and butternuts, I'll be living partly at the farm for her sake, and to go back up F's words all I can. But there's no law nor gospel forbid me keeping my cabin here, or from following the wood path and the river, and hearing and seeing what I can't allers give account of. How about my picture you was promising to take to send out to Alois, he said, now quite alert with brightened eyes. I'm ready today, if you will put on your old soft hat and long boots, and bring your rod down to the river where the grapes make a curtain that hides the bank, and the water rushes over the stones. No, don't fix up. Come as you are. I want you to look your natural self. Just as you say. But natural self ain't what nobody I've seen pictured ever looked, said Tom Gear, really laughing out loud, to my astonishment, for before that I had only seen him smile silently. There is the place, I said, pointing as we reached the river. Now wait along as you do when you're trout fishing, whipping your line until I call, stop. As he waded through the eddies and swung his rod before casting, he seemed to undergo a mysterious change. Time of year became himself again, instead of the anxious old man of the last few weeks, who had told me of past sorrows and present perplexities. Whatever else befalls, I thought, Alois shall have a picture of her grandfather as he really is, the half-wild wood spirit in his haunt, surrounded by a drapery of vines. End of chapter 11